Let us pause now to look inward, exploring, if we dare, the secret places where motives are made and intentions live. Beneath appearances, what kind of persons are we? Is the inner self congruent with the one that rejoices with friends, assists the infirm, comforts the crying child? No, as we take the inventory and remember mistakes we have made, impure thoughts we have had, schemes we have hatched, we know that all is not right within. We are born to inconsistency, not purity, and conscience is a dubious guide that leads us stumbling along the path of virtue. We are all fallen, all self-condemned, for time after time we have succumbed to temptation and chosen a lesser good, betraying the truth of ourselves, the truth etched indelibly on our essential being. This, then, is our estate and our inescapable humaneness. Let us recognize and not deny our imperfections, forgive and not condemn ourselves. May growing awareness of our mixed motives and morals increase our humility and make possible lives of greater sensitivity, sincerity, and serenity. Come, let us worship together. for today is Personal Spiritual Trainers by Nathan C. Walker. When you come to me, come not with the expectation to have some passive clergy person cuddle you with complacency. No, come to me as your PSD, your personal spiritual trainer. I'm serious. I want to see you move. I want to see you root yourself in a community built on moral complexity and to hold one another to the ethic of intellectual honesty. I want to see you move beyond the religious hang-ups of your broken past and use your regenerative spirit to seize the day. I want to see you flex your muscle, moral muscles. I want to see you exercise your spiritual practices to the point of training your mind and body and spirit to collaborate as a single, integrated, and dynamic entity. I want to hear you articulate your beliefs. I want to hear you articulate your faith to the point of having some moral relevance. I want to know that you're engaged in the moral issues of our time. I want to know what makes you afraid. I want to know if you're cultivating your doubts and your questions so that when you do take a stand, we can all trust your authenticity. I want to know the intricacies of how you are treating other people. Have you learned new ways to better our relationships? If so, share them. I want to know if you have learned to like yourself. Have you learned to love yourself? I want to know if you feel alive. I want to know if you feel like being, like you feel like you matter, because to me, you do. You do, because you are my spiritual trainers.
In 2013, the popular late night host Jimmy Kimmel sent a camera crew out to the South by Southwest Music Festival with a simple task. He wanted to know what they thought about some acts that were getting ready to come on stage. So one of Kimmel's interviewers approached a man wearing thick framed glasses and a whimsical t-shirt. The big buzz on the street, said the interviewer, is contact dermatitis. Do you think he has what it takes to make to, to the big time? Oh, absolutely, said the fan without any hesitation. They later approached a woman at the festival. What have you heard about Tanya and the Hardings? The interviewer asked. Have you heard they're kind of hard hitting? The woman launched into an elaborate response about the band. Yeah, a lot of men have been talking about them, saying they're really impressed. They're usually not fans of female groups, but Tanya and the Hardings are really making a statement. If you know much about modern music, or puns, or both, you may have picked up on what Kimmel was doing. See, contact dermatitis isn't the name of a musician. It's a skin rash often caused by an allergic reaction. And Tanya Hart and the Hardings isn't the name of a band. It's a play on the name of Tanya Harding, the former Olympic figure skater who is perhaps most remembered today for being embroiled in a conspiracy in 1993 to injure fellow figure skater Nancy Kerrigan. You may have picked up on the clever little pun that they did, hard hitting. The interviewers with the South by Southwest festival goers were part of a segment that Kimmel calls Lie Witness News. <laughs> and the goal was to see how many people they could get to just play along with the names of fictional bands and musicians, thinking the people involved likely didn't want to appear like they didn't know who the hottest new act was on live national television. However, because the people he interviewed didn't know what they didn't know, they ended up appearing foolish anyway on national television and fed into Kimmel's thesis that many of the people there didn't know what they were talking about. Now, it's almost certain Kimmel cherry-picked the people that he showed to only show those interviews with people who weren't willing to admit their ignorance. I'm sure there were people who said, Tanya and the Hardings, isn't that a figure skater? And you can probably make a case the segment was pretty cruel, humiliating and expecting people simply for a few laughs at their expense. I still find the segment interesting, though. Why are so few people willing to admit when they don't know something? Did these people really think they knew who these fictional music acts were? 
Or were they simply afraid of the social stigma of not knowing? It makes me wonder, what makes people so defensive against being wrong that they can't be reasoned with, even when it comes to factual errors? A huge clue for me comes from an unusual story that you might find even more ridiculous than the last one, but it actually happened. In 1995, a man named MacArthur Wheeler robbed a bank. What was unusual was that Wheeler did nothing to hide himself. He wore no mask or disguise, and he even smiled at the security camera as he was leaving. He then went on to rob a second bank on the same day. Same MO, no mask, no disguise, smile at the camera, before returning home for the night as if nothing had happened. You can probably guess what happened. Police looked at the security footage from the banks and they were quickly able to identify and track down Wheeler who was utterly shocked that police had found him. But I wore the juice, Willer exclaimed. See, before his robberies, Willer had poured lemon juice all over himself. He had reasoned that pouring the liquid on himself would render him invisible to the cameras and the bank employees. <laughs> After all, he reasoned, lemon juice is used as invisible ink, so as long as he didn't come near a heat source, he should have been completely hidden. And I have to add this piece in that I only found out at Theology on Tap the other night from one of our participants. Apparently, he also had some confirmation bias in there because what had happened is he tested his thesis before a mirror and accidentally got lemon juice in his eyes. So since he couldn't see himself in the mirror in the moment after he got lemon juice in his eyes, he truly believed he was invisible. If you're like me, you probably came to the conclusion that the police first thought that Willer might be mentally ill or on drugs. But the police had a full psychological workup done on him, and they came to the conclusion Willer was of sound mind. He was just incredibly, incredibly mistaken This episode made a bunch of the newspapers and the weird news sections that you often see, but it caught the eye of psychologist David Dunning at Cornell University, who became fascinated by it and enlisted the help of his graduate student, Justin Kruger, to see just what was going on. They suspected that Willer was the victim of a cognitive bias that might not be as unusual as we first think. 
Their hypothesis was that while we all hold favorable views of our social and intellectual abilities in various fields, some people rate their abilities much higher than they are. In other words, Willer may have been a victim of a delusion in his own understanding about how invisible ink worked and ranked his understanding of the solution much higher than it was. This seemed to be confirmed by the fact that he argued with the police that they were able to find him and the police had to show him his own reflection in the mirror before he would believe them. So Dunning and Kruger performed a series of tests to examine how well people rank their abilities in several areas. For example, in one instance, they asked 65 people to rank how funny different jokes were. Some of these people were absolutely terrible at determining what other people thought was funny. But the same people described themselves as excellent judges of humor. You might have known some of these people. And it wasn't just humor. Similar results found when people were asked to judge their knowledge of fields such as grammar and logic. Those who believed they had the highest abilities in each field did exceptionally poor in reality. In fact, the bottom 12th percentile in the test ranked their ability in the top 65th percentile. The result of this research was the first serious examination of a cognitive bias that's come to be known as the Dunning-Kruger effect, named after the psychologists who first identified it. What the Dunning-Kruger effect says is that people often think they are better in a subject than they are. They don't have the ability to recognize their own ignorance. A combination of poor self-awareness and low ability leads them to overestimate their own capability. Like Willer, people who have fallen for the bias aren't mentally ill. They just don't know their own limitations. We see it in action all the time. The obnoxious relative who declares over Christmas dinner how their political or religious beliefs are the only valid ones. The numerous internet commentators recently who were convinced they understood more about impeachment than the actual experts in the field. The person who reads a few Wikipedia articles and considers themselves qualified to school scientists on climate change on Twitter. The white person from a rural all-white town who fancies themselves an expert on racial justice based on solely their own experiences. There's definitely something to the idea that those without ability tend to overestimate said abilities. In summary, a little bit of knowledge about a subject is dangerous. It makes people susceptible to thinking they know more than they actually do. This raises a 
interesting question for me personally. If people in general are susceptible to the Dunning-Kruger effect, then it's not just the people who I don't like who are, or who annoy me who are susceptible. It means that I am just as likely as everyone else to be mistaken about my ability as well. But if this bias follows for me, even when I've, how can I even know when I've been a victim of my own ignorance? How can I know when the Dunning-Kruger effect has a hold on me? Dunning-Kruger has the power to affect so many aspects of our lives, from the mundane to life-changing decisions. So I think it's so critical today that we all learn to overcome our own preconceptions and struggle with others to address those things that are so important in the world. But it won't happen if we all think we're experts about everything. If everyone is stuck in the Dunning-Kruger effect, there is no chance of ever finding consensus on anything. It strikes me that we need ways to assess and evaluate our true abilities. And that starts with an old spiritual value that I feel like is too often overlooked in our society. Humility. The Chinese philosopher Confucius once said, to know what you know and what you do not know, that is true knowledge. There's some truth to this. The corollary to the Dunning-Kruger effect is that people who really are experts in their field tend to be much more humble about what they actually know and are open to correction when they are wrong. Maybe the prerequisite to being able to learn is to know how much we don't know, to learn to listen much more than we talk. Let me give you an example from my own life. I'm a white person, quite obviously. I don't need an ancestry DNA test to tell me that. I grew up in a mixed-race neighborhood, but didn't really have any friends of color until middle school. I was raised in a conservative family and sincerely believed that hard work and pulling yourself up by your bootstraps was enough to make anyone successful. Yes, it's ironic that my family believed this, even though it sure didn't work out for our family. I really believed that if a person wasn't overtly racist and if racism wasn't overtly codified in segregation and slavery laws, that everyone would have equal opportunity. I was very defensive about this for many years, convinced that everyone's experience was like my own. And I hurt people in the process because I sincerely believed I already knew enough about racism. It was only when I started seeing the effect of homophobia and transphobia on my own life that I started questioning how much I really knew. It cracked me open, and I was able to really listen to experiences of people of color. 
Hearing their stories of heartache, despair, and daily struggle, I became convinced that I was wrong, that racism has struggled, and that many don't have bootstraps to pull themselves up in the first place. Once I realized how much I didn't know, I became open to hearing that not everyone's experience mirrors my own. When we realize how much we don't know, it can crack us open too and make us ready for the acquisition of true wisdom. Psychologist Wayne Dyer once said that, once advised people to always practice radical humility. So how do we develop this radical humility and break free of the Dunning-Kruger effect, especially when it's so hard to see that we're wrong? I found some interesting starting points on the website very well, which suggests that there are three things we can do which will make people less susceptible to the Dunning-Kruger effect. Number one, keep learning and practicing. When you realize that in every subject there is always something new to learn, you tend to see your ideas of what is true and false as much more static and open to correction. When you, what you believe now may not be and hopefully will not be what you believe 20 years from now. As scary as it is, 20 years ago was the year 2000, and I certainly don't believe all the things I did back then. And that's okay. Never stop looking for answers. Second, ask other people how you're doing. Befriend people who will be open and honest with you and give you feedback that, though difficult to hear, has the potential to push you to be the best person you can be. And third, question what you already know. The Tao Te Ching says that those who think they know never learn. If everything you are learning and hearing is making you comfortable and confirming that you have all the answers and you're never wrong, you've probably fallen victim to the Dunning-Kruger effect. In order to hold ourselves accountable to what we really know, we have to expose ourselves to enough differing perspectives and conflicting information that makes us question how valid our conclusions are. Simply searching haphazard across the internet, which is a both a blessing and a curse for those who would seek knowledge, is not enough. After all, as my colleagues are fond of saying, yes, Unitarian Universalism believes that all people have inherent worth and dignity, but we never said all ideas have inherent worth and dignity. We need others in our lives who can help us sort through the weed and the chaff of ideas, who won't allow us to become complacent. In the words of our reading this morning, we each need personal spiritual trainers who can gently tell us when we've gone off the deep end, and we will all go off the deep end at some point. Being in community with others, being humble enough 
to admit when we're wrong, continually learning and questioning, I'm convinced this is how we minimize the effect of Dunning-Kruger. Most of all, we need to realize there's very few subjects that any of us are truly experts on, myself included. Another story before we close today. Calvin and I were recently watching a British series about five Amish teenagers who, for ratings purposes, were transported to Britain for a month during Rumspringa, the time when Amish youth are allowed to explore and partake in the world before making a formal decision to be baptized into the church. Now imagine this. These are people who have scarcely experienced even the United States outside of their small Pennsylvania communities, much less a foreign country. They were people who were very open that we've really never met a black person before. What's that like? A scene at the beginning of the first episode shows an interviewer asking them if they've ever heard of Marilyn Monroe, John Lennon, or John F. Kennedy. Three famous people I think most people in the United States have heard of. Unlike the South by Southwest festival goers that Jimmy Kimmel interviewed, the Amish teens didn't miss a beat. No, they'd never heard of these people. In fact, they seemed puzzled why they should be expected to know who they were. The Amish were humble enough to know what they didn't know. And the result was that when they did get to Britain, they were so much in awe about learning. There is a joy in just being present and learning about everything that they scarcely had time to overestimate what they knew. They were constantly learning, questioning what they didn't know, and they had their British host to hold them accountable when they did become too confident about something, usually about the universality of their extremely fundamentalist religious beliefs or gender norms. They did not succumb to the Dunning-Kruger effect because no one had ever told them they should know more than they did. So they had a sort of radical humility in all that they carried, how they carried themselves. Indeed, this all goes to show that maybe just as Confucius suggested, real knowledge is knowing what we don't know. I hope we don't all have to convert to Amish to figure out how to have that knowledge. So if this spring or summer you find yourselves at a music festival being asked about bands you've never heard of, I hope you're willing to say, I don't know. I hope you're not on the next episode of Jimmy Kimmel. We need to follow Confucius' advice and know what we don't know if we ever hope to actually know something.
This is a complete awareness. This is a complete change in our Western paradigm, a complete change in our awareness, I'm aware. But the stakes have never been higher in the world. Instead of following our politicians and Washington's example of speaking lots and lots and lots of volumes of words about things we don't know, let's acquire true knowledge together. And let's encourage the world not to be trapped in an eternally cruel Dunning-Kruger cycle. May it be so. I'd like to invite you to rise and body or in spirit as you're willing and able for our closing hymn, which is number 124, Be That Guide. In every person we meet, especially those who cause us discomfort, we find an opportunity for us to grow, to learn, to go further along the path of transformation that is our purpose in life. Every single one is our teacher. May the next week bring you many such moments of meeting that help you become the person you want to be, and may you welcome them with joy. Blessed be and go in peace.